This week on the Back Table Podcast. The literature is saying that the short course of oral steroids and a combination of a course of irrigation with saline solution in combination with steroids could have some impact. There are some other colleagues and some clinical trial for the use of PRP injections. There are trials going on for the use of other drug treatments that could help the patients to recover their sense of smell. Of course, we need to discriminate before moving forward. It's fascinating how some of the patients that recover and being reinfected, some of these patients are not complaining anymore the symptoms. It looks like a second reinfection would have triggered somehow the immune response and led these persistent symptoms that that lasted for two years now completely disappearing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, and I have a very, very special guest from Italy today. We have Dr. Puya Degani Mobaraki. He's an otolaryngologist specializing in rhinology and skull-based surgery at the Gubbio Galdo Tadino Hospital and the University of Perugia in Italy. He is the founder of Association Nasosano International Grand Rounds, which we discussed, if you recall, when he was a guest on Backtable ENT episode 56. So let me welcome back warmly Dr. Degani Mobaraki. He's going to discuss the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2 and its effects on the olfactory system. Welcome back to the show, Puya. It's good to see you and good to have you back again. Good to see you, Gopi. Hope you're doing good. And thank you for having me once again here. Absolutely. Just for any new listeners or anybody who doesn't know about Nasosano, tell us a little bit first about yourself and your practice and also about Nasosano again, because it's such a global education platform. It'd be great to have new listeners or you know, returning listeners check that out as well. So I'm a ENT surgeon. Mainly, my focus are mainly on rhinology and everything that goes around rhinology and, and the nose. I got my degree between different states and different countries. I started in Italy, then move abroad in London. Then I move for a while in Czech Republic, in Iran, then move back and completed my consultancy for one year in Varese, then move back in Perugia, where I was born in 1982. I also established and founded Association as a Sano in 2015, and the aim of the association were actually to support and provide a platform for not only a physician, but also for the community to have uh, some guidelines and uh, some guides uh, wherever they want to travel to have assistance around the world. The main thing is that naso in Italian means nose and Sano means health. Everything that goes around these words are mainly not only science, but also health in general. And health not only on our noses, but also on our mentality and our physical states. Since 2015, what we aimed was actually providing research grants and support for the younger generation and a young researcher. And that's what we, we did, establishing a collaboration with the European Rhinologic Society Juniors. Back then, I was part of the, edit, uh, of the board. After that, the supports moved forward and we established some other connection with the Yaki Juniors, with the Warskull Base Society, with Italian Academy of Rhinology. And now what we do since 2018 is basically, as you said, international live ground round, an all-live based platform in which every two weeks almost we invite international faculty and they can present their own research and some updates in regards to everything that goes around or surrounding rhinology and head and neck. That's basically our activities. No, it's awesome. Tell us where some of your faculties come from and tell us where some of the listeners come from. So the faculty are selected based upon their knowledge in the specific fields. Initially, we asked our faculty members to be involved in rhinology, then what we found out that after more than 100 live events, what we needed was a much closer relationship, not only with physician, but also with the community. And that's why we search for communication in regards to music, nutrition, then also 
breathing techniques and all this. In 2020, after the beginning of the pandemic, our research moved forward and we established also an ethical committee member board in which members are from all around the world. Of course, for the United States, we had the pleasure to have involved Zara Patel, John Del Gaudio, and, and people abroad, not only the people from the Europe. It's a great pleasure for me to, you know, have established such a good platform and a possibility to spread knowledge all around the world. And in fact, what you're doing right now with this podcast are basically the same like visual, not only by sound. And, and the people can watch them on our YouTube channel and get updated simply by watching something that was pretty much impossible like 10 years ago. Right now, with was simply click. You can watch the most renowned people around the world and, and researcher and get updated. And that's basically what the aim of the association is provide knowledge everywhere. Yeah, I think it's awesome. So for our listeners, please check out Association Nezosano. The international grand rounds are pretty awesome and it's global. So you have speakers and listeners who ask questions in the chat from all over the world and then it allows for a great conversation and dialogue. So let's get a little bit into the topic for today. So I know we wanted to discuss specifically the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2 and its effect on the olfactory system. But before we get there, let's just first get into your initial experiences of the initial COVID-19 outbreak in 2020, because you were at the forefront, especially when it came to the changes in smell. Tell us some of the, uh, your initial experiences. As you said before, Italy was one of the first countries to be affected after China and Iran, and the spread of the virus was global after a while. But initially, as you might be aware, smell and taste disorder were not included from the WHO as a markers of COVID-19 disease. In early March 2020, I have been affected and been infected by SARS-CoV-2, and I wasn't able to be tested because the mandatory requests for being tested for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection were actually other guidelines and other markers, which were cough, fever, and other symptoms, which were not included as a smell and taste dysfunction. I'm very glad that being president and founder of the association brought me to a wider audience. And because of the network that we have available right now, I was, you know, ready to provide those information to the community. And it was just because of an email that I've sent to all my colleagues around the world that suddenly I've been contacted from the, you, you might be surprised, but I, I've been contacted from the Air Force One private line in which our colleagues, which is Colonel Michael Xidakis, reached me and asked me some question in regards to what he have heard from other colleagues. And I was telling them that I was probably infected, not sure about that, because I was developing a sudden smell and disorder in which anosmia and agosia was the main symptoms. For those who are not aware of the fact that anosmia is referred for not being capable of smell anything, any flavor. And algeosia means that you're not able to taste anything. But those symptoms were just alone, without any other symptoms. And I was observing that those traditional nasal cavity manifestation that as seen as other upper respiratory infections, such as, for example, in rhinovirus, influenza, or adenovirus, were absent in my position. All this led us to prepare and to develop or to write down our experience in this. And we've been lucky to publish these new findings in the Lancet infectious disease. I think that this was one of the first steps to being accepted worldwide from the WHO, from other colleagues. Claire Hopkins, of course, did a great job in the UK by establishing those symptoms for the British, you know, respiratory society. So those guidelines after one month and a half were being accepted worldwide. So those were actually being accepted not only from society, but as a marker. Once you believe how much impact would have had this in the future months after that. So the people were actually be able to isolate themselves and by recognize these symptoms early as a marker. 
Yeah. So initially you were able to work. Were you contacted as well by the WHO? We did not work closely to each other because, you know, those big, big, big journals, we have seen a lot of troubles that were besides these this journals, how to say names are some established journals uh, which can make the difference. Yeah. And then they used, because of the lack of time, I think that they just used this as a preliminary information. And then after this, lots of other communication came out from the front line, but not only from the, from Italy, as you might be aware, after 20 days that the, the virus spread all over the world and the pandemic were declared after 10 days from, from March, this was the first step to move forward to being accepted. I did not have a personal communication with them, but as just imagine this, after this first communication at the end of March, I was be able to provide other information to our colleagues around the world. And I was telling them about this vasculitis problems that were affecting COVID-19 patients. And the British Journal of Medicine, of course, British Medical Journal also referred these new findings, not only to my colleagues, Andrea Giannatti, but also to me, because I was sending these preliminary emails with this information in a period of time that everyone were actually scared about these viruses. And I think that right now we are, you know, moving much, much, much forward with this information that we have. Well, I'm very appreciative of the network that you had and the international communication, you know, whether it was specific to anosmia as a marker, which I, you know, was a huge marker to find as um, a screening tool eventually. But also I recall emails from, you know, the Stanford group, which then allowed for our societies such as the American AAO, the uh, ASPO, and other societies to start saying, hey, as otolaryngologists, we also need to protect ourselves from aerosol generating when we're performing those procedures. So I think that that communication was priceless and very, very important for patient care as well as care for us as a specialty. So I'm very thankful because there were definitely times early on where I can think of a specific incident where I needed testing or PPE and I got some pushback. So having that fast communication and having support from colleagues that you guys put some stuff in the Lancet and it allowed to push our societies to make uh, recommendations faster to then protect us that for those of us who, you know, for all of us who are seeing patients um, and for what we do, which is you know, right in the nose. So let's talk about those uh, first six months of the pandemic, early 2020 to like fall, winter of 2020. In terms of anosmia, were you seeing some of those patients sort of in follow-up at all in your clinic? And if so, how long from the time of, you know, having COVID and losing sense of smell, were they seeing you and how were you, you know, treating them at the time? The initial report were kind of a strange for me because when you're finding something, everyone is getting excited about new discovery, new attempt to find something. It doesn't mean that is always in a good way. We learn from our mistakes. I remember back then that some of our colleagues were doing smell and sniffing sticks. For those who don't know, sniffing sticks are a method and are tools that we're using to assess how much the disorder in this specific case, smell disorder, would affect you and, and how much capability and discrimination you have in recognizing a specific odor or flavor or whatever it is. So using those tools in COVID-19 patients were unnecessary, in my opinion, because when you have someone that is infected with you, with a, with a virus, and you're trying to establish any kind of disturbance, threshold, discrimination, it's impossible to use those tools again. And I remember that a lot of our colleagues, unfortunately, were not able to assess because they were so excited, you know, to try everything. So I think that what changed after a few months was actually made up by this huge amount of research being published everywhere. And then also the clinical trial were being accepted immediately. I remember that clinical trials being accepted were very, very tough procedure and they needed a lot of different, you know, validation and other 
information for being accepted. But early in the pandemic, this huge amount of researcher and research were made. And what we found out was that not only the discrimination or the smell tests were being not correct, but also inappropriate in a specific time. We, of course, we learn from our mistakes and then the research moved forward. I was lucky, me and my colleagues, to work each other and to have the first people being affected. So we were actually early before others to start our research. Our main focus back then was to establish the natural immunity after an infection. But then we found out there were some correlation between those smell disorders and other symptoms that you were developing during COVID-19. And then also this protection that you might develop after a while. In terms of protection, I mean antibody production, which means uh, those uh, cells that you develop after a specific disease or infection. And those protection, those cells were developed, can develop after a while, like seven, 10 days, dependent on the disease. Specifically with this COVID-19 disease and SARS-CoV-2 infection, the immunity or those cells called antibodies were being developed after a mean seven and 10 days. And what we found out, there were a strong relationship between the antibody production and the smell disorders developed by someone. What we found out after a while was also that the virus mutation that were proceeding after a few months, I think that everyone remember that SARS-CoV-2 changed and mutated after a few months. We remember the UK variant. After the UK variant, we remember the India variant. I don't, I don't want to go for those synonymous or these small names, but I will prefer to step and, and tell you that dependent on the countries, we had some mutation. Those mutations were affecting the virus, making more infectious. But infections were not exactly meaning more lethal. The first mutation that happens from the UK variant to Indian variant led us to understand that the virus was changing, but some of the symptoms were still the same. And one of those symptoms were actually smell and taste disorders. From the UK variant to the Indian, to the Brazilian one, to the South African one, all of this were actually changing somehow the viruses, but not the symptoms. The viruses were getting more infectious, but not more lethal somehow, dependent on the countries. We saw, for example, that the India variant led us to discovering some other major rhinological problems. I think that everyone remember that black fungus, which is called mucormycosis, was one of the very, very aggressive disease that were affecting COVID-19 patients. And those COVID-19 recovering patients that were actually SARS-CoV-2 negative by developing this very, very aggressive disease, which is mucormycosis, also known as black fungus, because this disease, which is different from COVID-19, is affecting bloods and vessels and everything and destroying everything. So smell and taste disorder alone were not only those symptoms that kept going for almost two years. What we found out was that after two years in December 2021, the viruses, I say viruses because SARS-CoV-1 is the name of one virus, and the mutated variants can travel and can be present simultaneously in one place. So for me, viruses are different because they are mutated. And if we take in consideration that taking in a small box, having the same viruses, which is acting differently, in my opinion, is not the same viruses anymore is a different one. In my opinion, what happened after all these mutation were the fact that the virus mutation led to a different pathway of generating symptoms. And in this, we are coming back to the main title of our podcast for today. With the Omicron variant, what have you guys seen or found in relation to smell and taste? Smell and taste disorders are generally related to 
something that we found out much more earlier than the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Smell and taste disorders can be triggered by different diseases, for example, so Parkinson, Alzheimer, but also that they can be caused by head trauma that can be caused from other pathologies uh, such as cancer, for nasal polyposis. There are so many other reasons for developing smell and taste disorders, but not isolated smell and taste disorder. Usually, for example, taking in consideration Alzheimer or Parkinson, those are markers as a preliminary symptoms for developing a disease. For nasal polyposis or for cancer or for head trauma, those can be triggered by other problems. In cases of nasal polyposis, those polyps can obstruct a specific portion of our head or inside of our nose, the olfactory cleft and the olfactory mucosa, and the person affected by this situation cannot discriminate or cannot understand what's happening because of uh, obstruction. SARS-CoV-2, as we said before, were kind of a strange disease that were suddenly causing smell disorder and taste disorder simultaneously. What we find out and what the literature finding out that 70% of the people being affected, developing SARS-CoV-2 infection and developing a smell and taste disorder were actually getting back their own smell and taste after a period of time ranging from 20 to 30 days, a maximum six months. Some of those individuals can get their smell back completely with no problems. Some of the others can develop some other symptoms such as uh, parosmia or phantosmia. And those symptoms and those different qualitative perception of the smell, which is not quantitative anymore, which is qualitative, can lead to an impact in our perception of the smell and, of course, to discrimination. For parosmia, we do intend to have a symptom in which the qualitative smell is different. And sometimes um, what we're smelling is referred as something that is disgusting or is different from the normal perception that we had previously. And for phantosmia, we will have a perception of a smell in absence of any input. This was present in more than 70% of the people being affected by SARS-CoV-2 infection with mild, moderate, or severe disease. Of course, for those that were asymptomatic, we cannot say that these patients were having any kind of symptoms. That's why I'm referring 70% of the patient or individuals developing SARS-CoV-2 infection. But those problems were isolated without any other problems. In early December 2021, by having a new variant circulating around, we found out that this Omicron variant were acting differently. And the symptoms reported by the patients and the individuals were actually completely different. The symptoms referred by these people were actually the same problems and the same symptoms that we were referring to influenza, to adenoviruses, and then smell and taste disorder alone were no longer the predominant symptoms of the infection with those people infected with the Omicron variant. We had uh, the possibility to assess almost 205 patients. This led us to have a research published in the IFAR, which is uh, the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology Journal, a paper published with our colleagues, Zara Patel, Claire Hopkins, and other members from this association, my colleagues, Asya Zaidi and David Janandra, which is a, which is a neuro neurologist. Well, we found out that across 205 patients, 127 of those patients were reporting nasal congestion and 118 rhinorrhea alone. And 78 of those patients were having a combination between nasal congestion and rhinorrhea. And by all these people, more than 141 of those, of those individuals were not reporting any kind of smell dysfunction. And those that were presenting smell and taste disorder alone were very, very, very few. And in terms of smell and taste dysfunction, I do not mean complete anosmia, but also hyposmia. So by all this cohort of patients, the majority of those people were also presenting other important findings, which were 
malaise, myalgia, cough, fever, fatigue. Those symptoms were also present before, but this smell and taste disorder alone will not be present anymore. These findings also led us to make a postulation and postulate that Omicron appears to have a lesser tropis for the lower airways and mainly predominant upper respiratory disease and symptoms, which were nasal congestion, sore throat, headache, fatigue, cough, with a clinical expressiveness uh, that appears comparable to other coronaviruses, uh, such as OC43. The virus changed suddenly. And the problem is that we cannot refer smell and taste disorder alone as a marker anymore. Where do you see what kind of research gaps or where do you think your the studies or what are you guys going to focus on next in terms of following the virus or sort of why or specifics to the virus in terms of virology and its effects specific to smell? Where do you see the your future research going now with these findings? What's next? I, I would say that the future should be focused on the long-term effects of, the, of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And I do think that we should focus those long-term effects based upon a time frame. The wild-type virus, and when I say wild-type virus, means the SARS-CoV-2 virus that were circulating around the world in the time frame between January 2020 and probably August 2020. Every time the virus changed and a mutation occurred, the virus completely changed his behavior and some of the symptomatology. And in regards to this, also the long-term impact of those symptoms. We were aware of the fact that some of these patients were presenting long-term disturbances. And now, after two years and a half, we do know that long haulers still exist. And this is an important pathology and consequence of the viruses. And from my experience, I can tell you that the long haulers that mainly have some not only personal symptoms, but also psychological symptoms are those that were affected during the wild type presence of the viruses. And the reason for this is that we were, I say we, because I was part of it and I, I'm involved in this. I can tell you that being scared, don't be prepared for a virus. You know, you don't know anything about this. Have somehow an impact on your perception of the reality. Then the lockdowns, we can see now the effect of the, of the lockdowns taken in general. Look at China. Everyone knows that this policy of COVID zero, you know, restriction led the people and the community to have kind of a revolution. It's not because the people, you know, suddenly wake up and they are disgusting about things. It's because somehow you're being affected mentally, physically, and restriction and lockdowns, all these together have an impact on your perception, not only on yourself and the reality, but also on how much the perception of the senses would have on you. Never forget that smell is a, one of the ancient senses that we do have and can affect somehow your perception of your surrounding, can have a perception of uh, as an alarm, but also in your physical activity, on your sexual perception of the capacity of having a relationship to us, to each other. The people that are still suffering from long haul symptoms related to sense of smell and taste, developing, for example, parosmia or phantosmia, have a different and a different perception of their reality and of other, you know, foods. Imagine me still having this parosmic attack whenever I feel onions or I can feel, you know, coffee or everything changed to you. And the fact that we still have some perception, it doesn't mean that it's the, this perception is right. It can trigger me, you know, some disturbance, in my opinion, and can have an impact on the quality of your life. Weight loss, personal changes, and mental disturbance. All these symptoms are real. 
No, absolutely. I was going to ask you in terms of your patients that are, you know, had COVID that have persistent loss of smell or taste. How many, you know, I had a handful of like adolescent kids starting probably about fall of 2020 to like summer of 2021. I recall about four or five adolescent patients where at some point within that three to six month period before seeing me, there was a history of COVID. And yet they still had issues with smell. It wasn't all gone, but it was a lot of parosmias. Or the parents would say, when we're at dinner, they say everything smells like trash. Or I recall a, a 14-year-old super athletic kid that had lost, you know, couldn't play sports, lost all his appetite, didn't have the energy. Another one, you know, a lot of weight loss. And you're right, depression and things because the social engagement has completely changed. Do you have patients that are, you know, long haulers with persistent smell and taste? And how do you manage those patients? How do you counsel them? I have tons, hundreds of people referring to me with these disorders. Of course, my name in Italy is a, an established name in which everyone is referring to me because of this. But the amount of children and youth being affected by this are, I do think, and it's, I'm pretty sure, underestimated. Uh, recently, a paper has been published, uh, of course, in the, once again, in the International Allergy Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. And our colleagues, uh, Zara, Claire, they were discussing about the underestimation of this uh, smell, taste, uh, disturbances uh, prolonged in time. Even though we are underestimating those numbers, uh, it's a fact that a lot of patients still complaining about those symptoms only in cases whenever you are telling them specifically. And if you go deep with your questions and with the history of the patients, somehow they will turn and tell you, well, you know, sometimes I can feel this differently. I can taste this differently. This smell, this flavor doesn't resemble the initial smell that I have in my, you know, in my mind. And when it comes to children, this is more difficult to discriminate because children do not have the attention to tell you and express exactly what it is. But you can feel somehow that those children has been affected somehow because you can see the changes in their habitude and attitude and, you know, behavior. There's an increasing number, like crazy increasing number of children reporting mental disturbances. Some of those patients that I visited were actually reporting a problem in smell and taste, not only in discrimination, but also on the threshold. They will self-training to get the information that they needed. It's like you need to feel this and you self-training yourself. We live in a society where everything goes fast. Information are, you know, getting day by day simultaneously. The plastic regeneration, probably for the children, is completely different. But we don't know exactly if those recovery means exactly normality. So... Being normal, it doesn't mean that you, your sense of smell is back. Normal means that your sense of smell is back normally, not only completely, but normally and physically and physiologically. So I think those are two great points. Question for you, two questions. <laughs> One is, what are your thoughts on smell tests? Do you use them? When do you use them? In terms of smell retraining, how much do you utilize? How do you utilize that in your practice? And have you seen it helping these uh, long collar patients? So my practice completely changed. Uh, I have to be honest. I think that majority of rhinologists were aware and were, you know, aware of the fact that smell would have an impact in your daily life. But when it comes to you personally, you completely get deep into it. After being affected and being, you know, feeling this huge difference in my life, I thought to myself that uh, it's a mandatory test that you should perform in anyone that is referring to you with a smell disturbances, even when it comes to chronic rhinosinusitis. And also when you're taking the history of the patient, of any patient, and when you're referring or you 
when you're feeling that could be any relationship with autoimmune disorders or, you know, alarms like Parkinson, familiarity or something like this, I think that those tests can really change everything that you have in front of you. It doesn't mean that you need to complete a full sniffing or opposite or whatever test you want to perform, but the simple one that will take you five, 10 minutes would somehow change your attitude. In my practice, what I've learned in two years and a half is that not only sniffing sticks or smell taste can make a difference, but also tests like questioner would make a difference. In my practice, I were not, you know, routinely using some questionnaire like this, not 22 or making scale. In my practice now, I really think that having those tests done properly can somehow make a difference in your treatment and your retraining, as you say priorly. When you diagnosing someone, for example, for a patient that's suffering from hyposmia and simultaneously has a threshold disturbance and a discrimination test positive, then you need to address your therapy based upon this. When you have an isolated smell and taste disorder and you have the history of the patient, of course, in regards to SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, I will go for a different treatment approach. Why I'm saying different treatment approach? First of all, because we really don't know by now what are the evidence-based treatment for those patients, but we do know that smell training could make a difference. A long-term short course of steroids after disease, after few weeks or months, can make somehow a difference, even though the majority of the patients recover themselves. But in those short amount of patients that are still having those symptoms, somehow those small changes can be addressed by smell retraining, which goes from four different flavor to eight flavor, then also having nasal douches, the combination of steroids, sometimes zinc, the presence of alpha lipoic acid. All this can make somehow a difference. But when it comes to other pathologies, for example, chronic rhinocytosis with nasal polyps, the discrimination will let you have, or, or the threshold will let you have the possibility by combining these tests with questionnaires to assess a patient's, dividing patients between type 1, type 2, phenotyping patients, and stuff like this. So in my practice, I think that all these uh, smell tests, combination with questionnaires, uh, nasal endoscopy, all together now are making uh, a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of smell tests, I started to use them more, I think after COVID, like, you know, in kids, it's not as common that they're going to see you solely for anosmia. Maybe, you know, prior to COVID, I'd have maybe one or two, usually be adolescents, 12 to 16. And then after COVID, again, not a ton, but we definitely saw more. And having something objective was helpful in terms of talking to the patient and the family. A, it was the patient saying, see, there's something. There's something here that's off. I know it is. Also, it kind of maybe, you know, you can sometimes use that for prognosis too. Like how bad is it? What's the severity? And maybe counsel a little bit in terms of what we could or may or may not expect in terms of the smell, quote, returning. So I do think it was helpful in using it in my practice. And we tended to use a lot of nasal saline, smell retraining, plus minus. When you say steroids, you're referring to oral or nasal or both? The literature is saying that the short course of oral steroids and a combination of a course of irrigation with saline solution in combination with steroids could have some impact. There are some other colleagues and some clinical trial for the use of PRP injections. There are trials going on for the use of other drug treatments that could help the patients to recover their sense of smell. Of course, we need to discriminate before moving forward. It's fascinating how some of the patients that recover, which is not the right term because uh, some of the patients still complaining about smell disorder, but those recover from COVID-19 
and being reinfected, some of these patients are not complaining anymore the symptoms. It looks like a second reinfection would have triggered somehow the immune response and led these persistent symptoms that, that lasted for two years now completely disappearing. And this is the focus of our recent studies, which are showing somehow a relationship between antibody responses and smell and taste disorders. Uh, we developed, uh, we wrote down our report for our longitudinal analysis of uh, COVID-19 patient recovering after 14 months. And we noticed that depending on the severity of the disease, a patient could develop a different amount, which is not the right term, but an antibody response, which could be counted somehow. And in this, what we found out that the more strong immune response were noticed in the patients that were having a more severe disease. Somehow this could be referred to the fact that a more severe disease would trigger a more robust antibody response in the long term. Antibodies are produced when there is a failure of an innate immune response. For the scientist side, I can tell you the lack of production of CD4 cell, CD8 cell lead to the overproduction of CD8 and Th2 response. Whenever you have a natural killer immune cells, CD8 cell, cytotoxic T cell, your immune response is solid and is worked properly and, and is taking care initially and immediately of a disease. When it fails, then the immune response will switch to a CD4 cells production to the releasing of other immunoglobulin, for example, IL-4, IL-13, which is Th2 pathway. And the funny thing is that basically is the same pathway that is responsible for polyps developing. And there's a relationship between those two segments. We notice that the patients that were producing higher antibodies were those patients that were referring to a much more aggressive smell and taste disturbance. And somehow the relationship between smell disorders and antibody production led us to hypothesizing that is it SARS-CoV-2 somehow an autoimmune disease or triggering an autoimmune disease? And I can tell you by now that the latest finding that, that we are having is that SARS-CoV-2 is reactivating Epstein-Barr viruses. We write in this and we just submitted this communication. And what's the relationship between Epstein-Barr viruses and virus and uh, SARS-CoV-2? This is uh, something that is new. And I don't know exactly if, <laughs> if anyone is prepared for this, but it, of course, you know, the relationship between the Epstein Barr virus and other viruses and like herpes virus, cytomegaloviruses are very, very known. And you might be aware that the fact that cytomegalovirus and Epstein Barr virus is somehow related with smell and taste disorders. Those are not hypotheses anymore. This is reality. And what's happening is that SARS CoV 2 infection lead to a reactivation of Epstein Barr virus. I love it. There's so much there and there's so much at the forefront of all the research that you guys and discoveries that you guys are doing. Can we just jump back to zinc and alpha lipoic acid? Yes. <laughs> like coming out of the weeds of the viruses, the zinc and alpha lipoic acid, how do you normally prescribe that or utilize that? How do you tell the patients to use it? We don't have a evidence-based treatment by now, but we cannot be harmful. What we need to provide is something that goes outside of the box, but at the same time, not being harmful. So whenever you have a patient or an individual that is suffering from something, you need to be at least a physician that gives hope. I can tell you in my experience, giving hope to someone can lead to a huge difference. Imagine how much we had in the last three years the research surrounding smell and taste completely changed. I've been able to participate and be involved in an international consensus for olfaction. And it's a huge document 
comprising more than 600 pages where you can find everything in regards to the latest findings, meta-analysis, reviews, everything that goes surrounding olfaction. And the amount of science behind olfaction has been made recently and lately in the last three years, not only surrounding and in regards to SARS-CoV-2, but also in regards to olfaction. What is olfaction, the impact of olfaction on the behavior of us, in our mentality, and, and in, in everything. There are also some, you know, guidelines treatment, and there are also some suggestions in regards to pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatment. Alpha-lipoic acid and zinc shown some benefits. Showing some benefit, it doesn't mean that make a change, especially when it goes to SARS-CoV-2. We do know that zinc somehow have an antiviral activity. At the same time, we do know that high dose of zinc could be harmful. And also, even though for small doses, taking zinc in an appropriate time can lead to some gastric pain. Whenever you're referring yourself to somebody that is, uh, you know, patients that ask you, some of those patients are begging for some help because it's troublesome. Whenever you're referring to them and they can feel you, in my position, of course, they're referring to me because I've been through this. And I'm telling you, this is my experience. This is not reading every, everywhere. There are some benefits I cannot guarantee you. Why don't you try a short course of something that can be prescribed by me, but it's not a drug. It's uh, an integration for your dietary. There are suggestions that you can provide to someone for a short period of time, of course, not be prolonged because overuse of even nutraceuticals could lead to be harmful. There are some suggestions that you can give and based on science, uh, zinc as an antiviral activity, alpha-lipoid acid as a regeneration for cells. So trying something could be potentially good. I'm not prescribing anymore vitamin E drops because I tried on myself and placing those drops inside of your nose when you don't feel anymore the sensation of this can be very, very, it's not, it's not disgusting, but it's just uncomfortable. And I did not have any good news about this. So I'm not prescribing that. It doesn't mean that it, those are not working. They might working for somebody. So that's the, the crucial point. We do need trials. We do need experiments in a good way. And we need tests. The same test that has been done for the development of those vaccines. Vaccines that we have now are based upon more than 40 years of research. And we should be thankful somehow. It's a, it's a bad word to say thankful to HIV because yesterday, you know, HIV days worldwide, the discovery and the treatment. Imagine now an HIV patient that can leave and cannot transmit. It's crazy. And the development of those vaccines that, use, that recently has been used are based upon 30 years of, of research. At the same time, we saw this difference in olfaction in the last two years because of this research. So I would be happy to help and collaborate worldwide to improve the knowledge of this. I have thousands of people that would participate in this. But of course, by now, we don't have this. There's one thing about vaccines, by the way, that I would like to address. There are some papers, some, some researchers that say that somehow vaccination could improve those peoples that were still complaining about smell and taste disorders. There are very, very few reports about this. But for, for example, this also exists. We don't know why. We can't say why. But those things are based upon the research that we have been made and the symptoms that are circulating by now by the first two years of the pandemic. Right now, the COVID-19, long COVID associated disturbances are acting differently. This is not just because I say this. There are five, six papers published by The Lancet. There are also reporting the risk of long COVID associated, for example, between Delta and Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2. And they're also finding out that the reduction of, of long COVID with Omicron variant compared to Delta variant. And this 
has been also reported when it comes to children. Also a decrease in, in terms of, uh, of symptoms referred by Omicron. So the hope of a new beginning, I think that it started with Omicron, which somehow is the natural vaccine, in my opinion. As we start to wrap it up, I just want to tell you, Puyo, what you're doing with being at the forefront of this research. It's making huge contributions to discovery and knowledge, as well as having the platform to provide global education. It's pretty amazing the contributions that you're doing, providing to our field. Before we close out, are there any other final pearls that you want to, or tips that you want to leave our audience with? I would suggest all my colleagues and in general that hope is something that we should never leave. And helping each other should be the preferred choice. And helping each other, it doesn't mean that you need to help someone economically, physically, but also mentally. Sometimes some hope can make a huge difference. And I think that being the humanity that we lost recently and lately is it because we did not learn as much as we should have had as the initial period of this pandemic. I remember the first year, everyone were close to each other and helping each other. It wasn't somehow, you know, a fighting or the hunger for more. It was something that kept us unique and we should not lose this. And the hope that God sometimes give us should be a lesson learned. And I know that is nothing to do with this, uh, you know, communication and stuff, but I'm, I'm taking the advantage of this, uh, of this podcast uh, to bring some light to our colleagues. Sometimes we, we losing humanity and, and relationship, which, which should be always in front of us as a guideline. And after this, never forget that we as a physician are also human. And sometimes something that happened to somebody else can happen to you. And you always need to think, what if I'm suffering from this? I would love to have the best treatment. I would love to have the best from everyone else. So always give more than you receive. Because if you're giving without expectation, you will also always getting something, not from somebody else, but for yourself. So help each other. And, and I, I think that we can figure it out for the future. This is the first lesson that we had in the last century. So, Well, thank you so much, Puya. I love talking to you. I love what you're doing. I love our conversations. For our listeners, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. So reach out to us for topics, ideas, speaker, or if you ever want to come on the show. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Kieran Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.